So I grew up in a family with five children, the oldest, which means, of course, I was, uh, you know, the most worthy of the five children in my household. But anyways, when we were young, um, I used to think that, and at times I used to actually say this to my parents, when it was time to do work around the house, and my mom would give us all responsibilities, you do this, you do this, you do this, I used to think, the only reason you had all these kids was so that you could get all this work done. And I, at times I actually verbalized that to my mother, uh, which didn't end well. But the idea of having children because you'll get more work done is ridiculous. All of us who have children know that's not why you have children. You, know, you never turned to your spouse and said, you know, honey, there sure is a lot of chores to be done. Perhaps we should have some children and that will solve all of our problems. I mean, nobody, no, no one ever thought that. But, you know, the cultural conversation around the Christian faith and around the God of the Christian faith is that he has children so that they can do stuff. And that the Christian faith is essentially a life of doing for the purpose of earning love from this divine, you know, cosmic killjoy. And, I, and I'm not being trite when I just say these things and I'm not broad brushing it because I have regular conversations, regularly, with people who don't share my Christian faith. And when I say, so talk to me about, you know, what are kind of some of the thoughts and conversations you have about God? I mean, these are the things that come out in that conversation. But the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God does not want hired hands. He wants children. And God's grace, as we've been studying it through Luke chapter 15, this familiar story of the prodigal son, reveals that God wants children and not hired hands. And we see what God's grace does, not only for us individually, as it's expounded through this teaching of Jesus, but also the kind of community that it creates corporately. So this morning, the text I'm uh, going to be reading is Luke 15, 11 to 24. You say, well, Paul, you've been reading that a number of weeks. Yeah, we're going to read it seven weeks in a row, actually. And, uh, but in addition to Luke 15, we're also going to read this morning, I'm going to read two excerpts from Galatians 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul echoes this teaching of Jesus about sonship and what it is to be a child of God, and we're going to look at this. In the context today for this reading, right before I read it, the reason why Jesus teaches this is he is sitting down, he's having food, he's communing with these sinners, these downcast social rejects, people who are down and out, people who are very successful and who are up and out, and Jesus is gathered around a table with them, and the religious crowd look over at the community that Jesus is building, and the religious crowd say, we don't want any part of that community. They're scandalizing Jesus because of the kind of company he's keeping. And they're saying there's got to be something deep in his heart that is identifying with the sin and he enjoys the sin and they're scandalizing him. So Jesus hears that and he turns and he gives us this parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Because ironically, the community that the religious crowd wants nothing to do with is precisely the community that Jesus is building. Luke chapter 15. And Jesus said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered all his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine came to that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to work with the pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now from Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now Galatians 4, 4 to 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Now, The son says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then Paul echoes this teaching in Galatians by saying that in in, in Christ, all of us are sons. The father said, my son was once dead and now he's alive. What is with this ancient conversation about sonship? There seems to be this radical equality here, inequality here, which I'm going to address right off the bat. Otherwise, we're going to lose you for the rest of the sermon. Because it, it keeps on, the text keeps screaming, sons, sons, sons. My son was dead and now he's alive. What's with this sonship? In the ancient world, the, the only way to preserve the family's name, the family's values, and the family's legacy, and the family's wealth, what, what they did was they gave it all to the, to the sons. The oldest son got the most youngest sons. The daughters got nothing. This is, this is by modern standards, it's totally unjust. In fact, in ancient standards, it was still unjust. It's just that their economy worked in such a way that that's what they did. But it's totally unjust. So what is, the, what is the biblical significance of this sonship here? I mean, it didn't, regard, it didn't matter what culture you were in. It didn't matter what country you were from. The entire ancient world operated this way. It's not like an, it's not like an ancient biblical thing. It's just an ancient world thing. So what do we learn? What are we being taught here? Well, what we find is that Paul, and we just read the text, Paul in Galatians says something very scandalous. He says that in Christ Jesus and in the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, You're all sons of God. Paul ascribes this radical dignity to women that was otherworldly. It was millennia ahead of its time. Because what Paul was saying is, in Christ Jesus, you all get an inheritance. Not just the men. The men and the women are equal heirs before God. You all get an inheritance. By calling the women sons, if you call a woman a son today, that's offensive. But when Paul said in Galatia, you are sons... The ladies would have sat up on their chairs and said, what? Radical dignity. And the men would have probably been going, oh, hold on, let's see what this does mean in the original language. Well, that's right, I speak the original language. Well, that's what it means. 
So Paul is describing this radical dignity to women. And the Bible is even-handed in its gender-specific metaphors. So what we don't want to do is say, well, you know, I know that we just read a lot of passages from the Scripture and it says sons, but we're just going to ignore that. Because then we lose the gravity of, of, of what the gospel did. Was it, sh- it shook the barriers. It shook the culture barriers. It eradicated the gender barriers. It eradicated the social class system barriers. It said, in Christ... You're all children of God. You all, in Christ, all get the inheritance. The Bible is even-handed in its, in its, in its uh, gender teaching, uh, gender metaphors, because, for example, if I was teaching this morning out of um, 1 Corinthians 11 or Ephesians 5 or Revelations 19, then all of us men would be wrapping our minds around being brides, the bride of Christ. We men are the bride of Christ. Right? We men are the, are, 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 have to wrap our heads around that. So when the Bible teaches this, it's doing it very specifically. Uh, and so I just want to start right out of the gate in, in uh, addressing the significance of this quote-unquote sonship. What does it mean to be a child of God? The significance of this. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that by grace and through faith in Christ alone, we are all children of God. We're going to expound on that in three ways. We're going to ask three questions of this text as we expound it this morning. The first question we're going to ask is, what does it mean to be a child of God? The second question we're going to ask is, what are we given as children of God? And the third question we're going to ask is, how is life enjoyed as children of God? So what does it mean, what are we given, and how do we enjoy it? So first of all, what does it mean? Well, it means that we've undergone this remarkable, undeserved status change by grace. You've got the imagery in this parable of a father running and hugging and pouncing and kissing this this undeserving son, and he welcomes him in. That's the entire Christian faith in a microcosm. I mean, that picture right there, I mean, that is the, if you had to look for a picture of Christian faith, that's a beautiful picture of why we gather to worship. The one who cut themselves off through sin is welcomed in. The lost is found. The one who's suffering is brought into celebration, exile, and homecoming. That's Genesis to Revelation. That's the gospel. The running, loving, kissing, pouncing forgiveness of the Father for those of us who don't deserve it. In every other ancient religion, including the religions today, the gods are like kings, but we are like subjects. But in the Christian faith, our God is a king, but we are his children. That separates Christian faith from all the other religions. Say, well, they're all, all religions are the same, just pick one. No, no, no. Because in all the other religions, you're a subject to this divine ruler. Whereas for us, our divine ruler is also our father. You see, in uh, Buddhism, there's an eightfold path that you have to follow so that you can reach a state of nirvana. In Hinduism, uh, you have to go through constant cycles of reincarnation based on the works that you do in your life so that eventually you're good enough that you're absorbed into the Brahman. In Islam, the good that you do in life has to outweigh the bad that you do in life so that you're accepted into heaven by Allah. Right? Whereas, uh, in, uh, I mean, even in, even in Mormonism and in the Jehovah's Witness faith, both the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and they both assert that it's your works, in addition to what Jesus did, combined together, that are ensuring your salvation. It's only in the Christian faith that you find this father running off the porch... Toward the one that doesn't deserve it with kissing, pouncing, forgiving love. This is what it means to be a child of God. It means this undeserved radical status change. 
If you talk to most of the people in, in, just on the street, say, what does it mean to be a child of God? They're not going to say it's a status change. They're going to say it's a behavior change. And as long as the behavior change continues in an upward direction, you're okay with God. But being a child of God is not a behavior change. It's a status, it is a status change, which we know as mature believers results in a behavior change. Because we've been saved in radical grace, and what do we want to do? Live to the glory of the one who saved us in radical grace. But we're not saved by our behavior. Otherwise, that father would have never run and jumped off the porch and kissed his son who did nothing to deserve that. This is the radical grace of God. He welcomes us in. And so in Luke 15, 24, which we read, the father says, this is my son. And in Galatians 3, 26, Paul writes, we are all sons. And this welcome home is the, hearting, is the heartbeat of the gospel. There's an old Scottish theologian uh, named uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and he's a theologian of, uh, or he's a professor at the University of Redeemer in Texas, and this is what he says. He says, the notion that we are children of God is the mainspring of Christian living. To be uh, God's children enjoying life to the full with God is the apex of creation. It is the entire goal of redemption. This adoption, this being child, ch- children of God, this is why we gather. This is why we celebrate. This is why we eat and drink. This is why that's a cup of celebration, not a cup of suffering and remorse. This is why we sit at home and we talk to our children about the gospel and we teach God's word to our children. This is why we plant churches. This is why we uh, desire to preserve the gospel in the city generation after generation. Because our God is so good, our Father is so amazing, His love is so gracious, is so wonderful. Being His children is a joy. It marks our life. Knowing that we're accepted uh, by our Father, absolutely. You know, the adoption by which we call God Abba Father, which is what, what, we, just read, which is what we just read, it's a one-time event. It's a one-time adoption event. In the same way that an adoption becomes legal at one point in time, in a legal office somewhere, somebody signs a paper, and that adoption is legal in a single moment. In 33 AD, on a Roman cross, Jesus Christ bled and died. And in that single moment, our adoption became legal. We call that justification. One and done. On the cross in 33 AD, God wrote himself into human history. We look back, we point at it, we say, my adoption is secure. There is no divine shredder over your adoption papers. We don't live with a sense of fear like, well, you know, gosh, if I don't, if I don't fire on all cylinders, God may just shred these things and may, may forsake me. If that was the truth, nobody in here, starting with this preacher, would be saved. Because if it was possible for us to have our adoption papers shredded, they'd all be shredded. Starting with mine. So it's because of Christ, as children of God, that we rest in the goodness of this adoption. We rest in the fact that the kissing, running, loving, pouncing, redemptive forgiveness love of the Father has chased all of us down. That's what it means to be a child of God. It's beautiful and powerful. Our justification, of course, leads to a life of sanctification. That's what it does. You can't separate those two things. You can't say, come in Savior, stay out Lord. That's not Christian faith. People who are like, oh yeah, I'm all about the grace. I have no desire to live in obedience to that grace. First John and all the apostles are like, those people probably aren't saved. So we can't look across the aisles and say, well, on the basis of behavior and performance and piety and spiritual discipline, I think this person is and this person isn't. We're not the judge. 
It's our job to celebrate as children and live to the glory of the one who saved us with the grand security that Christ has done it all. In 1932, there's that old uh, Little Orphan Annie uh, story where, where Mr. Warbucks brings her in and the big black shiny car pulls up in front of the, uh, of the mansion and Annie comes out and she comes in and there's all of Mr. Warbucks' servants and they're very happy because Mr. Warbucks is such a great man and here's little Orphan Annie and she's all dirty in a little dirty dress and they look at Orphan Annie and they say, well, what would you like to do first? And little Orphan Annie says, I suppose I'll start with the floors because in her mind, I've got to earn my keep here. That's the cultural conversation about Christian faith, but that's not the gospel. To be a child of God, we are not earning our keep. Our obedience is flowing freely from the radical, mind-blowing, jaw-dropping grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we want to live to the glory of the one who saved us. The gospel is total substitution. It's a total absorption. The father runs, and, runs off the porch and he kisses and he hugs his son because he absorbed everything to reinstate that son. The gospel is total substitution and the false gospel is contribution. Which is why Jesus teaches this. Who's the audience of this teaching? Who, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious leaders that are looking at him at the table that he's sitting around. They're going, we're not about that. And Jesus is like, well, I'm about it. Not only am I about it, let me just give you a picture that's going to knock you off your theological hobby horses. And when you get up off the ground, you're going to be like, my Pentateuch is broken. Because I've got to show you something that's contrary to everything that you're holding dear to. The religious crowd was trusting in their rule keeping. That's the point. In Luke 15, they're trusting in their rule keeping. In Galatians 3 in Galatia, they're trusting in their rule keeping. They're saying your rule keeping is what saves you. No, we're children of God. Let's move on. What are we given? That's what it means to be a child of God. This radical status change. But what are we given, though, as children of God? We're given this deep-rooted sense of identity. We're given this radical hope. We're given this assurance. We're given this sense that our standing before God is intact. There's an inheritance that's coming, and that actually changes our day-to-day. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we relate. It changes the way that we look at the stress and the worry and the tragedy and the injustice of this world. It just changes because our hearts are being recalibrated. When the son says, I'm no longer worthy to become your son, in verse 19, the father doesn't even respond to that. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't respond. Because the son's thinking, I'm going to be hired back. Why does Jesus teach this? Why does Jesus put in the mouth of the guy, hey, I'm going to hire my way back in. I'm going to earn this back. Why does he do that? In Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics, this is what Aristotle wrote, which, which speaks of the culture that Jesus was, kind of came into. Okay, A slave is a living tool. A tool is an inanimate slave. That's how Aristotle wrote about slave, the, the slaves, about the hired help. According to historian William Barclay, Rome allowed people to sell themselves into slavery. You could sell yourself into slavery to become a Roman citizen. You could sell yourself into slavery to gain economic status. And William Barclay uh, says in the, work that he, in the work that he had done in an observe that there was a lot of ancient transcripts that reveal that many, many, many slaves that sold themselves into slavery had bought themselves out of slavery by the time they were 30 years old. That was how the economy worked back then. Right? When we hear slavery, we think of you know, uh, uh, whips and oppression. And no doubt that occurred. And, and I'm not defending slavery in any way. What I need you to understand is that in the ancient world, when they said slavery, it meant if you don't own everything and you work for somebody, you're a slave. 
So by ancient standards, unless you are an owner of your own company with no debt in this room, all of us by ancient standards are slaves, just to put it in perspective. So the son is thinking like the culture. I'm going to earn, I'm going to earn my freedom. But what we're given is not that. That's why when he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, that's met with no response. Why? Why does Jesus not have the father respond? Because he needs them to understand that the idea of making yourself worthy is so off base. It's nothing like the heart of the father. So what he has the father do is he ignores the son who says he's not worthy. And he doesn't, also doesn't turn to the son and say, no, 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 look at you. You're so beautiful and awesome and full of purpose and gifts and abilities and manifest destiny. Of course you're worthy. I mean, of course you're worthy. You can do it. You are amazing. I mean, come on, son. Look in the mirror. You're a champion. That's pop theology. It's, not, it's utter nonsense. The father doesn't look at the one who's unworthy and go, yeah, you're worthy. He looks at him and he doesn't answer. And he goes, I'll make you worthy. There's only one version of this working out. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. I'll make you worthy. This is what we're given, this radical grace in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26, we, we read it. You are a God's adopted child. And when you are adopted, being a child is not something you work at. It's something that you are. Being a child of God isn't something that you aim for. It's something that you are. The life that we live as Christians, to the glory of God's grace, the spiritual disciplines that we bring into our lives of prayer and worship and scripture meditation and desiring to align ourselves to the guidance of God's law, that is propelled by this gospel of the good news that we're not aiming to become something. We're living in accordance with who in Christ we are. That's why all of the New Testament uh, calls to obedience that the Apostle Paul writes and the other apostles write, every call into obedience to Christ, they, they, they don't blink. Paul doesn't go, oh boy, I hope this goes over okay. I mean, I know I just spent four chapters telling them they're justified by Christ alone, but now I'm going to get into put off your sin. And I hope everybody doesn't freak out and go, hey, what happened to the grace in the first four chapters? Because what Paul is thinking is, do you, because of this, this is not only a prescription for how we're to live, this is a description of who in Christ we actually are. Being a child of God is not endeavoring to become something. In the same way that if you have children that are different ages. I have a 19-year-old, I've got a 16-year-old, I have an 11-year-old. There's things that the 11-year-old still does that the 19-year-old does not do. But I don't look at them and say, my 19-year-old is better. They're a better child. But that's the constant language that's used in modern Christianity. I'm trying to be a better Christian. How are you going to do that? Exactly. And what exactly is the bar? I'll tell you what it is. It's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the bar. How are you doing? I'll help you. Not good. Okay? So what we are endeavoring to do is not become <laughs> better, but we are actually maturing. And Christian maturity, maturity comes from marveling. That's why all of the letters in the entire New Testament to the churches, the first half, read them, all of them, they're all dedicated to getting the church to marvel. 
Because maturity flows from marveling. That's why Paul writes in Corinthians, <laughs> chapter 1, Dear sanctified, past tense, saints, stop sleeping with each other and doing all these crazy things. Your sin is so bad, the Gentiles are blushing. How can you write that? How can you say, dear sanctified, past tense, saints, stop doing all this crazy nonsense that's making a mockery of the gospel, making a mockery of grace, and destroying your lives. Stop it. How can Paul do that? Is Paul schizophrenic? Does Paul have some sort of a theological disconnect? No. It's because of this. It's because of the adoption. It's because we're children. It's a life propelled by this radical joy. The father says, bring the robe. And that's significant because it's not just, you know, think about the detail. It's not just bring the robe because he was with pigs, he stinks, he needs a change of clothes. Although, that's valid. Right? I've worked in barns. I worked in Holstein barns in southern Ontario for two years when I was a youth leader. And I, sometimes I left from the barn to go work with the youth. And, it, and I could change my clothes. And it was obvious I needed more than a change of clothes. But when Paul says, when, when, when Jesus says, uh, puts in the lips of the Father, bring the robe, that covering is so significant. That's cause for celebration, church. Because all throughout Paul's letters, he uses this clothing analogy as well. That's why Paul says, you're all sons. Jesus depicts the son as being clothed. Paul says, you're all, you're all sons, you're children. You're all clothed too. You read Colossians, Galatians, Paul uh, does it in Ephesians and Romans. He uses this clothing imagery. Why? Because clothing gives you a sense of identity. All of you are wearing the clothes you're wearing because it speaks something to your identity. But our being clothed in Christ is a speaks to our ultimate identity. That's why when you're shopping, you see an outfit and you say, oh, so-and-so would love that. Because you look at the clothes and you associate it with their identity. But we're clothed in Christ, our ultimate identity. There's nothing closer to you than your clothing. There's nothing closer to us than the Spirit of Christ who is in us, who's reminding us we're children of God and renewing us and restoring us. Clothing is also has, has to do with imitation in the same way that sometimes little kids, they put on their parents' clothes and they, you put the clothes on because you want to imitate your parents. We're called to put on Christ. Put him on. Put, put, put on Christ. Imitate him. Why? Is that imitation somehow some burden for the church? You read the Bible, imitate Christ. Oh no, imitate Christ. How can I do that? I can't live up to example. Well, no, of course you can't. Starting, starting with this preacher, none of us can't. Yet, as children, that's precisely what our hearts want. That's precisely what grace does. And it causes us to say, if I have been clothed in Christ, which I have by sheer grace, may I now live to the glory of the one who clothed me in this grace. And clothing also has to do with acceptability. Right? There's all these parables that Jesus tells. It's like, hey, if you're, dressed, if you're dressed in the right robe, you get into the wedding. And if you're not, you're not. At the end of the day, you're not, you're not clothed in your own work. You're clothed in Christ. Those are the only two options. And I'm going to tell you, being clothed in Christ is the only option. We're not going, none of us are going to get up, stand before the judgment seat of God, and you know, give a resume. You know, one time I did this great thing. Um, I also did this you know, Bible study, and I did, it, I did like one of those year plans, and I checked all the boxes. That was pretty great. What? No. Clothed in Christ, which propels everything else. It's about it. When you're clothed in Christ, it's about being acceptable. Clothing makes you acceptable. You say, well, that's not right. Our clothing shouldn't make us acceptable. Well, go to the restaurant naked and let me know how that works for you. Clothing is what makes us acceptable. Clothing changes things. If you go out in the middle of the street and you just stand there and go, whoa, 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 you might get run over. But if you're clothed in the uniform of a police officer and you walk in the street and go like this, everything will stop. As children of God, 
we live our life with a deep sense of security, and right, we're not we're not trying to live to be make ourselves accepted. We are accepted. The gospel frees us from relating to people with superiority. The gospel frees us from relating to people with inferiority. The gospel liberates you, church, from shaking hands and having coffee and having an internal conversation about where you stack up with whoever it is that you're talking to in this room. The gospel liberates us from this. The only reason all of us are here is by Christ's grace. So that liberates us. We, We can't be superior. But... At the same time, the only reason that we're all here is because of Christ's grace, which means nobody else is superior to us. We're free to love people. We're free to love our neighbors. We're free to relate to those who aren't in this church, not with superiority. Because we're not better, we're found. And if you relate to the world like you're better... Instead of your found, is going to create two profoundly different kinds of communities. Again, let's zoom back out. Why am I teaching all this? Jesus is sitting around a table with people who were once lost, but if you're eating dinner with Jesus, you're found. And Jesus is looking at people who consider themselves to be better, and Jesus is saying, You're lost. Come and have a seat at the table, but the only way to get a seat at the table is to let the running, pouncing, kissing love of the Father rescue you by grace, not put your trust in your rule-keeping, and then be clothed. Bring the robe. Put the clothes. Your robe is no good. The Pharisees were very impressed with their robes. This is the wrong robe. So we have great rest as children of God because we are loved apart from our performance. Kind of like being a Blue Jays fan right now, right? That's what it's like. Just loving people apart from their performance. I watch all the Blue Jays games and every time I'm just like, this is an exercise in grace right now. Why am I even, you know, I still love you, Asuna. It's cool, you know, hey. Love apart from performance. I was preaching in London, Ontario a few years ago and uh, I was teaching the text that was in Galatians. There, this, this elderly lady came up to me and she was crying. And she said, you know, my whole entire life I have been worried that I would not hear well done, good and faithful servant before God. And she's weeping and she's crying. 83 years old and she's crying. And I said to her, I said, ma'am, I said, you are, I mean, your faith is in Jesus. You are going to hear well done, good and faithful because your trust is in the only one who was good and faithful by God's perfect, righteous standard, right? For those of you who are catechism people, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience, right? That's that's the bar. So united to the one who did all that, there's this rest. And I'm watching this woman, and she's crying out, and I'm so angry. Not not angry at the religious idea that she thought her, her works were what were required. Angry at the fact that I've preached that. Angry at the fact that I've taught that. Angry at the fact that I have contributed to the idea that it's like, yeah, you're in, but it's your performance that keeps your adoption papers from going into the divine shredder, which is utter nonsense. And being a child of God, we are, we are liberated from that kind of fear. And when you think about it, not only is that story that, I'm, that I just shared with you heartbreaking, but it also explains why so much of, and I'm, being, I'm broad brushing here when I say this, but it explains why the church, global, um, is often very afraid of sharing their faith. Because if deep, 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 deep down, 
You believe that what's going to keep you in God's good graces is you and not Jesus Christ. That's pretty tough to sell to your neighbor. I mean, if deep, deep down you're convinced that you're better than your neighbor, it's going to be very difficult to, to share the grace of Jesus with someone who you're like, mm, they seem pretty far from the porch. I'm not convinced the father would run that far. I mean, we're going to have an evangelism problem, globally speaking, if the conversation about being children of God is that we keep ourselves, that we keep ourselves in God's good graces. And so I'm going to close with this. How is life enjoyed as children of God? If, if, if being a child means a radical status change, and what we've been given is this in, incredible sense of identity and security, how is life enjoyed? Well, it's enjoyed with this great confidence and humility, but it's also enjoyed in community. And like I was saying earlier today when I was speaking in regards to the membership class, from the beginning, God has been bringing people into his family and into his community. And when I talk this way, some of you have... It's, like, it's almost like I need to have a trigger warning when you talk about commitment to community within North American church because people are like, oh my goodness, you know, this is the part where the charismatic leader calls us to his vision and we all just blindly you know, get involved in this crazy cult. This is the North American conversation about committing to community. Uh, ironically, when you talk to people individually, what they expect is they expect you know, love and sacrifice and forgiveness. and They've got a long laundry list of things that they want from the community, but then when you talk to them about committing to community, they're like, no, <laughs> whoa, no. And when you talk to them about, uh, about you know, their willingness to be a part of you know, letting the Spirit do His renewal work in community, they go, ah, really what I'm kind of up for is I'm... I'm going to come in, listen to the talking head, you give me a good sermon, you preach Jesus, I leave, when I'm kind of good with that. I get that. I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not trying to be trite here. And, and, and uh, if you feel like, oh my goodness, he's talking about me, I probably am, because I'm talking about like, the entire North American church's struggle. You know what I mean? So on one hand, don't take it personally, and then on the other hand, you know, please take this personally. What, what, we, what we want is enjoy the grace of Jesus in community by... by uh, by living in community. In a sense, think of it this way. It's like, I mean, we can all, there's a lot of great churches in this city, so you can choose your church, but you can't choose your brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? So it's like, once you commit and be like, here's where I'm going to worship, here's where I am going to, you know, receive Christ, I'm going to love these people, I mean, brothers and sisters. So when you commit to KW Redeemer, you say, I'm going to be a member of this church, and I'm going to receive uh, Christ here, and I'm going to, uh, week in and week out, and I'm going to be a, a minister here. And you can't pick and choose who your brothers and sisters are. The point is like, all of us, with all of our dysfunction and all of our warts and all of our sin, it's the whole package, you know. I mean, that's, that's, this is what we're committing to, is I mean, like, well, hey, I mean, we're now the family of God, and we've all come in by grace, and so we're actually going to enjoy uh, God's great community by, by grace. There was a critic, an ancient critic of, of Christian faith. He had nothing good to say about Christians. His name was Lucian of Samosota. And, but listen to how he described the first century Christians, about 125 AD. He's a, he's a Greek writer and he's a Greek satirist, so he wrote a satire on Christians. He's basically making fun of us. But listen to one of the things that he described. This is what he said. Uh, this is from his work called uh, The Death of uh, Peregrinus. He says, The Christian community can be described like this. In dealing with matters that affect their community, it's something extraordinary. They spare no trouble, no expense. And from the moment that they're converted, they deny the gods of Greece and they worship the crucified sage and they despise all worldly goods regarding them merely as common property. And what he observed was there was something that the grace did individually that created something in the community, this love and this care 
for brothers and sisters. And so we enjoy life as children of God, you know, in community because we need to draw on God's grace. We need one another to encourage us and stand with us because we live in a world that is a paradox. You see, because of God's common grace and the gifts that he gives to everyone, then irrespective of whether they put their faith in Christ, we enjoy from the great benefits of of humanity. But at the same time, because sin has broken everything, we live in a world that is devastated in many ways. But God, in the great confounding defiance of what we deserve, has drawn us in. And so we, we uh, enjoy our lives as children of God you know, in this community. Knowing that it, we are not just coming together to be like theological mechanics who know where all the doctrinal bolts go, but we don't enjoy driving through the countryside with the wind blowing in our hair, celebrating God's grace and encouraging one another in that and being there for one another in that. So this is my second and final closing, because I realize I said in closing, so here we go. Thomas Goodwin is a 17th century scholar, and he says this, There once was a father and a son who were walking along, when suddenly the father swooped up the boy in his arms, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, and he told him he loved him, and he put him back down. Now, was that little boy more of a son when he was in the father's arms than when he was on the street? Well, no. Objectively and legally, it was the same. There was no difference. But subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In the father's arms, the son was experiencing sonship. And so being a child of God isn't just a thing that's intellectual in our heads, but it's it's experiential by the Spirit of God doing his renewing work in our lives. And so as we do this, as we enjoy God's great grace for us in community, we enjoy this sense of deep-rooted identity that we stand justified before God. It means having his great grace for us, church, strengthening our hearts in times of weakness. His grace is perfect in our weakness. By God's grace and through faith in Christ alone, we are children of God. Let's pray.